I recently read Doug Midori's blog post, A Year in Internet Analysis 2022, which was a great overview of all the major events on the internet, sort of at a global scale, I guess, for last year. And it naturally reminded me of major internet events in previous years, too, just because of the content he wrote about. And though I found that very interesting all on its own, I did start to notice a theme among all of these events, the ones in Doug's blog post, of course, but also as I think back over years past. The biggest events, the biggest global-scale internet disruptions, probably most memorable for me at least that I can think of, seem to be caused by only a few things, namely natural disasters, human error, and lately intentional outages caused by national governments for whatever reason. I really can't remember any major global-scale outages that were caused by an SFP going bad or a router CPU being pegged or, or something like that, maybe a core switch hardware just failing. Now, from experience as a network engineer, I know those things do happen. But when I think about those huge global-scale uh, disruptions, it seems like hardware going down or otherwise good solid code just breaking for no reason it really doesn't happen that often, at least not often enough, and at the scale that affects huge parts of the world, if not the whole world. So today with me I have Doug Midori, the Director of Internet Analysis at Kentic, to talk about his recent blog post, A Year in Internet Analysis in 2022. Let's get started. So, Doug, it's uh, great to have you today. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a while since you and I have done something together collaboratively, so it's good to see you. Uh, while our audience can't really see you, this is mostly an audio-only podcast, but it is good to see you. And I read your blog post recently, right, A Year in Internet Analysis 2022. And, and I, I want to ask you, as we start to get into this, you, you heard my intro. Do you agree with me that there is this kind of theme among internet outages, not just in 2022, but in previous years, that they all seem to be a result of those kind of three main pillars, uh, natural disasters, undersea cables being disrupted by a hurricane or a volcano or something like in your blog post, uh, human error, you know, configuration problems, uh, people configuring BGP incorrectly, and, and you mentioned that in your blog post. And then what I really was interested in, and also uh, toward the end of your blog post, the idea that there are countries that are now uh, intentionally disrupting internet service for uh, the folks in their countries being a cause for a major outage. Uh, do you see that as kind of a main theme, or am I reading too much into it? What, do you, what are your thoughts? That sounds like uh, three good categories that covers a lot. Um, I'm not think I can't think of a, a, a counterexample that doesn't fit into one of those. But yeah, I, I'd agree with that breakdown. Yeah, I mean, you, you started off by talking about the eruption near Tonga. And uh, in your blog post, you have that, uh, that graphic image. It's so interesting to watch. But that was a volcano exploding, as volcanoes do, right, from time to time, taking out an undersea cable. And therein lies you know, major disruptions for the nation island of, of Tonga. And uh, I, I assume that region. I don't know. I have to, I have to look into it more. But um, uh, what, why is it that... It doesn't seem like devices themselves, like hardware, um, bad code, really causes a lot of the disruptions. Do you think that's because the internet is that resilient that we're so good at, right, you know, creating hardware? All the major vendors, or or is it um, that we're just not hearing about those because they're not as sexy? Well, hang on. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far to say bad code doesn't lead to outages. In the Tonga example, there was no bad code was not the not the issue. Um, yeah. Uh, on that one, you know, in the in my blog post, I kind of went into. I I, I was um, uh, years ago in my time at uh, Renesis and then Dyne Research. Uh, I had a uh, a real interest in trying to identify submarine cable activations and because um, they were kind of interesting. And then the Tonga one I had spotted back in like 2013, or I think it was uh, a number of years ago. This was a case where. Um, uh, for Pacific Island nations, it's very hard to get them uh, to be uh, connected to the global internet. They're relying on satellite. Um, satellite's very expensive. 
uh, per megabit, uh, especially given it's especially bad in the South Pacific because the way that the business of satellite service works is that you kind of get to, to divide the cost by the customer base. But in the Pacific Ocean, it's a very large uh, piece of real estate that has very few uh Customers, so your your denominator is pretty small. So then, I remember attending a submarine cable conference uh, or speaking at one in 2013, and someone was talking about the same. You know, at the time, uh, the wholesale bandwidth costs in North America are. You know, I don't I don't know if you even know if these figures we use these figures anymore, but um, you know, it was like a dollar a meg a month. You know, like there's always some sort of figure of what's the wholesale. Uh, a bandwidth uh, cost. It's probably like a penny or something now these days. I don't know. But um, uh, in the South Pacific, it was on the order of a thousand. So it was like a thousand times the cost. Uh, and you're limited on capacity, high latency, like all these other problems, and you're paying a thousand times more. So um, it's it was an act of humanity to, uh, it was a humanitarian uh, gift to Tonga that the Asian Development Bank and UN put together the money to put this cable uh, to try to modernized society of this country and then i was following that story and then um uh you know part of my interest was there'd be a, a press release about a submarine cable act, uh, activation and then i was just curious to see i would see it we would see it in our internet connectivity data uh when when did this thing actually start carrying traffic because those are two different dates the cable may be ready to go uh, maybe they maybe there's no lie in the press release that's it, it really did happen but then there's a moment where it's actually carrying traffic so we spotted that so i had a little bit of history on tonga and particular because i remember when i saw this i was like i remember tonga like we we talked about this uh, years ago and then um yeah so then they were at that point had turned down all their satellite services they're completely relying on the submarine cable um and um and they had to restore, uh, I think, whatever uh, residu residual satellite uh, antennas were knocked out by the aftermath of the um, uh, uh, that blast from the undersea volcano. Yeah, but it wasn't just uh, that undersea cable that caused major issues last year. I mean, you talked about the uh, issue in Egypt, though I don't think that was caused by a natural disaster like a volcano or something. I don't know if there's any volcanoes. No, I don't know that we got an explanation on that one. I know. Yeah. So I wrote up a blog post on that one <laughs> as well. And I that's, I don't know, Egypt as a choke point in the global internet is a uh, perennial theme, certainly in uh, the submarine cable space uh, of trying to come up with an alternative path. It's a, you know, uh, the Egyptian uh, government makes a lot of money off of that uh, choke point, as they do the Suez Canal. They, they do it with the internet as well. You, you pay to cross your cables um, through uh, that space. But um, occasionally there are terrestrial outages. They try to build a lot of redundant uh, overland links to connect the cables that go from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. But every once in a while there's a there's a an outage. I remember one a number of years ago. I mentioned in the blog post. Was uh, we saw one. It looked a little like this one. There was a you know, hours-long outage, and at the time I had a uh, a great contact in Telecom Egypt who manages managed the submarine or the fiber optics, uh, the overland circuits. And I was like, "What happened here?" I look, I was seeing saw an outage. And he's like, "Oh my God!" He's like, "You're not gonna believe it." Like we had people light fire to one of the um, like COs, the, the uh, trying to get copper out of the lines, not knowing these oh, wow. are all fiber optics. Uh, and there wasn't much copper to be had, uh, so they just burned us down. And then they, and so they had to at least, at least if it's on land, uh, it's a mat, you know fixing this stuff usually is in the matter of hours. If it's under the sea, it could be days or weeks, depending on where it is. Right. Well, I mean, the, I started off by mentioning natural disasters, and we talked about the uh, the volcano eruption near near Tonga, but we're 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 kind of focused more on undersea cables now. And you did make the comment that there are very few undersea cable uh, connections, specifically in the Pacific. Um, is that pervasive throughout the world, or do, or is that an is that a very robust method for moving data between continents and among continents? Because I'm I'm wondering, uh, some of those cables also have to be very old, correct? Uh, yeah. So let's see. There's a couple of things there. One is, um, you know, if you look at the submarine, submarine cable map.com, uh, I know you've the best seen map this. Of all yeah. Time. It's a pretty cool thing put out by telegeography. Uh, it was a good reference. Um, I've got one of these printed on my, my dining room table wall, or dining room wall. Uh, but, um, uh, um, show what kind of nerd I am, but, um, uh, you know, these things follow, follow the same, you know, uh, maritime trade routes, the, 
people have been uh, following ships forever. So the the highly trafficked paths, you know, between across the Atlantic, across the Mediterranean, uh, South Asia, around you know, the, far, the Far East, these line those lines are there's lots of cables, there's lots of redundancy. Uh, you know, the, the only risk is that there's ships also going those same paths. They may uh, set an anchor down or drag an anchor and hit a cable. In um, if you were to look at like marinetraffic.com, you compare the two, they're going to look very similar of just like where are the cables and where are the ships? They're going to the same right. places. And they're also going to show that they're not, there's no ships, or there's very few ships in the South Pacific and there's very few cables in the South Pacific because it's very, a, a cable is an expensive endeavor. It is uh, um, millions of dollars, uh, you know, at least a hundred million, you know, uh, on, onwards to a billion, depending on uh, the length really? and the complexity. Wow. And, the ROI, this is another thing that gets speak, talked about at submarine cable conferences usually is uh, there's a lot of um, investors and business people trying to understand the business case around this and how to mitigate the risks and maximize the ROI because you, someone has to in, raise a lot of money uh, and, um, and how much money you're going to make off this, it's not – a ton, but you also have this risk if it breaks, it, you're getting no money and you have to pay to fix it. This is why all the made like Google and Amazon and Facebook have gotten into the submarine cable business because um, they are bought, their business is just different. Uh, they don't have to make money off the cable. Uh, if it serves their greater business, it's good. And so now they're kind of um, you're driving that industry. But anyway, but so so I just one I'll, I'll let you I'll let you talk. But uh, the um, in the uh, in the South Pacific, one other interesting thing that um, happens it's not that often, but you mentioned these, some of these cables are old. So as a cable gets uh, old, someone had come up with an idea uh, a while back of, and I, it's amazing this has actually happened. But uh, so the cables uh, they 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 will pull up a cable off the seabed. I can only imagine all the life forms, you know, barnacles yeah, and right. things that have attached to this thing as they're pulling this up onto the ship and then relaying it somewhere else. Uh, and, you know, in the total cost, I mentioned these figures of either hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, like half of that or more, or no, it's, it's more than half. It's, it's the vast majority of that is the fabrication of the cable uh, is the, and then there's the installation is the way it's termed in the, uh, in the industry of like actually putting it in the water is the installation. The, um, the fabrication of cables is the most expensive part. And um, if you can uh, pull one off the ocean, that, that's, that's some that's some cost there, uh, but then uh, so there's been a couple of cables that have been relayed as quote unquote donor cables is the term, and uh, and so I forget the one that was uh, so that a cable may be um, no longer it was this was in the area of Australia South Pacific uh, it no longer served its purposes it didn't have the capacity to handle a major route but if it, but it'd be plenty to hook up a, a smaller island nation uh, as see, far as capacity right. goes. And so you could re reuse the cable. And so this has happened a couple of times, which is, again, a pretty mind-blowing thing that this takes place. Yeah, oh, it is. That's amazing. pretty neat. Do you think that the, uh, the movement toward uh, more ubiquitous satellite connections and connectivity uh, on a global scale is going to solve some of the inherent um, uh, danger uh, that, you know, undersea cables being dragged up by by ship anchors and natural disasters and, ever, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, I guess it, it could. It could uh, to some yeah. extent. I mean, the satellites are never going to have the capacity of a uh, fiber optic uh, cable. Right. Uh, so that, we know, is never going to be the case. Um, you know, the other issue I mentioned earlier with Tonga or other countries that are relying on bulk satellite service, uh, latency is an issue. Depending, uh, if exactly. it's a geostationary yeah. satellite, then just due to the laws of physics – uh, it takes a, a certain amount of time for light to travel to outer space and back, and it can't be shorter than a 400, 480 millisecond round trip. It's yeah. probably going to be significantly more. Yeah, right. Uh, with so then there was um, uh, O3B came out with the uh, the first MEO medium Earth orbit, and so these are uh, closer satellites. There's more of them, and then uh, it gets more complicated on the ground because you have to like now track uh, satellites as they're crossing through the sky. Because they're not correct? Yeah, this is, this is a medium, medium Earth orbit. For, so yeah, geostationary, okay. you can have one dish pointing in one place and then let it leave it. And so it's real simple. How far away the, is geostationary? <laughs> I don't You have to look it up. I don't have those numbers. I'm, I'm Googling it as you talk. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. There's some great diagrams. Um, I'm not uh, – I don't have those figures memorized. 22,236 miles above Earth's equator. So, yeah, the laws of physics kind of govern how long it takes light to travel – round trip. 
uh, out from your location to that side. So you had an O3B orbit. create uh, medium Earth orbit, and so that came yeah. right closer. Uh, mm -hmm. There's more complexity on the ground equipment. Mm -hmm. um, the latency is a lot lower, and in some places uh, where this was getting fielded in places where they were never going to get uh, terrestrial or it was hard to reach places, uh, then they were getting latencies similar to what you would have with terrestrial, um, but you know, the latest is these uh, low Earth orbit, uh, this is uh, Starlink, um, yeah. you know, SpaceX, and then uh, OneWeb, and uh, you know, Amazon has a project they want, they're, uh, I don't, they're pretty early on in the Project Kuiper, um, and there's a bunch of Chinese, uh, they call them mega constellations, and these require thousands of satellites, and, um, but yeah, that, uh, you know, could that help in a, in a Tonga situation, an undersea volcano takes out Tonga? Um, uh, yeah, I guess um, in, in the case of Tonga, Starlink was one of the first, um, uh, I think there was other Pacific satellite operators that got in there first, but um, uh, they were, Starlink was uh, providing some of the capacity. Uh, they did need to set up a, uh, a ground station in Fiji because uh, it's only recently that they've had uh, inter-satellite links. So this is uh, mm, their piece right. to the low Earth orbit, is that if, if your satellite's very low, then the footprint's very low, and you have to just ricochet up to the satellite and back to the ground, and now you need to have a ground station pretty near, close nearby. Um, and so they're, uh, this inter-satellite link, being able to go up to a satellite and then from one satellite to another satellite is like super complex and really hard to do, and they're starting to do yeah. it now. Um, so that has to be that has to be really solved in order to do things like use low Earth orbit to cross the Atlantic. Right now you can't do that because you can't come back down. You have to go inter-satellite links over, um, and that's uh, just starting to happen now. So yeah. it could. You're just never going to have the capacity. Right. Not until they invent subspace communication, like in Star Trek, I assume. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's yeah. there's belief that the so the I guess there's some science behind the inter inter satellite links because they're going through a vacuum in space can actually carry a higher capacity than the link going from the ground to the uh, 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 to the satellite um, and. So there's okay. some gain to be had you know, yeah. um, in the fidelity of the links and the interspace inter links. Yeah, and I have to assume that as that technology progresses and improves that it will offer a uh, – I mean, I know that it's never going to be the same as like a, a hard fiber you know, connection uh, here on the ground. But as it improves uh, in resiliency and in uh, data transfer speed bandwidth, um, you know, it – it would be more immune to natural disasters than undersea cables and, uh, you know, things that are affected by hurricanes and earthquakes and things like that. I mean, I, I can remember when first learning about all of the uh, this choke point. You mentioned the choke point in the Middle East. There's a choke point, I believe, in the tri-state area of New York. I don't know if it's on the New Jersey side or in Manhattan. And I just have to imagine if there was one problem in that building where all of these connections go through, you know, that that's it for the, the Northeast U.S., which is, you know, kind of a few people. So now I do want to move on to, uh, I could talk about undersea cables for the next three hours. So we definitely have to do that again. Me too. But I do want to get into, <laughs> you mentioned, you, you looked at the Rogers outage uh, from last year. That was a big deal. I remember reading a ton of blog posts on that and, and all of your analysis as well. Really interesting stuff. Uh, a terrible, you know, thing to occur, but ultimately... I don't know if we know with full certainty what the true cause of that was, what the root cause, but everything points to human error, correct? Yeah, so that was, yeah. um, uh, I think, arguably Canada's largest internet outage ever right. uh, in history. And um, uh, and it was long. I, I forget the, the duration, but this is uh, many hours, uh, maybe 24 hours uh, before it was completely you know, uh, getting restored. And... Um, uh, yeah, there was some after uh, some root cause uh, published. You know, these these things are always uh, uh, to people who are pretty techy like me who going to read these. It's always insufficient. It's never enough detail. Uh, I would love to let, know some more, and they're never gonna. You're just never gonna get there. But um, in this case, you, if you read between the lines, it seemed like what was happening was uh, they had basically leaked uh, the global routing table, which is you know over uh, 800,000 routes or something right. into their IGP, their int whether it's internal BGP or something, their, their internal routing, which is not going to be anything on that scale. Um, and you're, if you're using uh, a protocol like OSPF or something that, that is very talkative to try to maintain total knowledge of, of links, uh, 
these things do not go well together. Um, they're very different uh, styles of, of routing. So um, the there was basically they leaked the table in. At, there's just too many um, announcements, and these routers were just melting down. Mm-hmm. And um, you know why it took so long is uh, I think it seemed like there was some commonalities to the historic Facebook outage uh, the previous fall, where you know uh, there's uh, unforeseen dependencies. Uh, the you know the, the the engineers were also using Rogers uh, mobile service uh, and the the companies. Uh, using its own uh, communication services to coordinate its work, and um, and when that goes down, they don't have a way to coordinate, and um, and so that uh, uh, extends the outage because it's you know, it's very hard to if you can't talk uh, if your normal tools for talking are no longer available. Um, but it does reveal some stuff about the Canadian internet. You know, this is a an, uh, an issue where there's uh, different pockets of Essentially, mon- monopolies and uh, of uh, Rogers and um, Bell, and this is uh, you know folks in the internet industry in, in Canada wrestle with this, and um, uh, probably be and there's and they're actually moving towards a more greater consolidation. Still, uh, if you have your major provider that's got a, a near monopoly in a region go down, uh, there may not be a lot of great op- alternatives to use. So that that may have contributed to the, the duration of the outage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a routing thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Sounds like a filter was removed. I guess we're not going to know uh, much more than that. Uh, but I would say that uh, you know, like there was uh, there was a lot of folks um, when this outage took place. We're all looking at BGP is a thing that is easy to go as uh, a go-to uh, for for me and uh, people uh, like me who do internet measurement. Um, and there's a lots of there was lots of um, uh, Routing instability going on at this time. A lot of routes got pulled, um, but we could see because we we have this. Uh, I have the uh, the benefit of having our aggregate net flow to look at. Of like, what do we see the on our customer base? Can we, what can we see uh, as far as communications with um, uh, uh, Rogers? We could see um, routes that stay routes that stayed up, and the traffic stopped going, uh, and so that means that. The route wasn't the problem. The routes were still up and available and, and at times stable, but they weren't carrying any traffic. And so, you know, there's got you have multiple layers of this onion of their network. You've got some that routers that are announcing their address base to the rest of the internet, and you got internal routers handling, handling how does the traffic uh, move, move within the network. Those were down, but they were still advertising their space. So um, there was some initial claims that they left the Google routing table. Um, I mean, some routes did, but, you know, that was one thing I tried to pick apart in the, in the blog post was to say, um, all right, we can see traffic stopping to routes that are still up. Uh, so that I, it's not really a BG, BGP thing. Um, in that case, it's a, you know, an internal, I mean, not an ex, exterior BGP, maybe it's an internal BGP doing what routing protocol they're using internally. Anyway, so, that was, yeah, it's uh, interesting that you can you, know, you have this uh, really um, deep visibility into what's going on in the public internet, and then you can use that and parse it in such a way where you can actually uh, infer what's going on in somebody's private network. Uh, to some extent, to yeah, include. yeah, yeah. And I remember uh, just a few years ago, prior to Rogers and prior to the Facebook outage, or, or was it prior? Didn't didn't Facebook do something in this in Southeast Asia where they accidentally were a transit network for the public internet for a time or something like that? Ah, um, uh, let's see. It was like a major disruption as a result. I don't know if it was Facebook or somebody else, but um, I do well, remember there's there's like been that. a thing, a couple of things like this. There's, there was a Google yeah. incident where they um, Google leaked uh, um, had, a, had a BGP leak that took down a lot of connectivity in uh, Japan uh, for a while and. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, remember I wrote something up on that at the time. Um, they got called. There's a ripple effect. The... There's a cascade effect when you get into routing and, and talking about, especially if you're talking about full feeds and things like that, and uh, and then redistribution of routes and how you uh, filter, like you mentioned. I mean, it, it's a cascade effect all the way down to endpoints sitting on your network. You know, you you really need to be uh, very aware and careful as a human being, engineering, you know, actively engineering and touching, wiggling wires on your network. Um, I remember uh, the AWS uh, outage as well. Remember that uh, was it the S3 outage, and um, 
it came out that it was somebody who misconfigured something. I don't remember what. I wrote a blog post about that, and, and my blog post was called uh, Amazon S3 or something like that. We've all been there because I've been there. Now, I, I don't work at the global – I didn't work as a network engineer at the global scale except for some co- consultant work I worked for uh, – I did for GE. But other than that, it was large enterprise. But, yeah, if you configure something incorrectly, just one little uh, error uh, in an access list or in a route map or whatever it happens to be or uh, – <laughs> the one I like to joke about is on, you know, maybe it's a major trunk port going uh, in your backbone for layer two and you forget the add command if you're using Cisco devices. And then boom, everything's down. It's a it's very high impact and it's just you as a human being that can cause all of that disruption. And I, I wonder if there is a way, I mean, now that we talk about network automation and programmability and, and this desire to eliminate that which is error prone in manual configuration, of course, make things more efficient and and cleaner and all that, but also eliminating that error-prone component of manual configuration. I wonder if, if that is realistic or not. I mean, ultimately, the, the, the code that we write in Python, and I think some people still use Ansible playbooks and things like that, is still written by human beings that require an understanding of how BGP works and how, how to write an, uh, you know, an inventory list or, or how to write a route map. It still requires a human being to know that and to figure that out and to parse that in such a way in code where it interacts with all, everything else going on in the network. So I, I don't know. I don't know if we can ever get away from the human error component of these types of outages. Uh, maybe we could it's, a it. uh, it's a lesson in humility. Lesson in humility for sure. You know, I think I think probably twenty twenty one. This is this will be with us forever probably. But mm. uh, I think twenty twenty one was definitely the year of learning a. a of, of humbling experiences of the greats of the internet uh, yeah. falling to their knees. You had Facebook, you also had Amazon, had a couple outages. The second one wasn't as big, but the first one you mentioned where there was an internal DNS uh, issue. It turned out that a lot of internal services uh, did not use uh, multi-region, which is kind of funny. I mean, that's a, that's a cloud operator. They can, it's their stuff. They could yeah. they could be replicating this in every region. Everything was based <laughs> like like the rest of the world in U.S. East one, uh, and uh, they were too, and and singly homed with their internal services, including their internal DNS. Uh, it's kind of um, I don't know. It's uh, there's a uh, but uh, I, I it's easy for us on the outside to be like oh you should have known but the you know and it's. Um, uh, I think these things, uh, especially this scale, the scale that we're talking of like a Facebook, AWS, uh, earlier in the year it was Fastly and Akamai had outages in that year. Um, I think every major content provider uh, yeah. has had a, has had one of these. And um, uh, it's, it is hard to anticipate every dependency. Uh, right. And um, uh, the, then this, you know, out of band. Uh, it's easy for us to say, "Oh, you should have had an out of band uh, communication that doesn't have any dependency on your network and allows you to remote into your stuff and can configure it." And, like that's that's actually a hard thing to number one make and then two secure. Can you imagine? A, and a, you're creating backdoors uh, that have no, uh, you know, reliance on anything. We're trying to secure that. I mean, it's, sure. it's it is not is harder. It's easier said than done. Uh, building these things. I've been there too. I mean, I've made those mistakes and and have had those humbling experiences, but never at a global scale. You know, I've taken down networks. I I remember uh, taking down subnets and then entire networks from time to time, but, 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 you know, a few enough where I learned from my mistakes and then really took the time to analyze and to investigate and to research prior to making a change. And even then, you know, during that change window, you're sweating literally sweating because you're like, okay, here we go. And the whole team is like, you know, on pins and needles. All right, hit the enter button or the enter key. And, uh, but, it, but it was never at this kind of global scale. And, you know, we've been talking about, what, eight companies, 10 companies? That's, that's all you've mentioned, the names of literally less than a dozen companies thus far in our conversation. Uh, and that, granted, that's just in the scope of our conversation. But the point I'm trying to make is, is this idea of, a very few number of companies holding the, uh, not the power, but uh, all of the connectivity and the data transfer and all of the content even for so much of the global internet today, maybe that's part of the problem where somebody makes, some human being makes one problem at Facebook and then boom, you have a huge, huge disruption. Whereas if there was something more decentralized or there were more companies and I, I don't know, 
but I, it seems yeah, to no, me this that is that a, I think this this here. this topic definitely came up uh, when um, in the uh, in the Amazon AWS outage in December. I mean, when Facebook went down, it was basically everything owned by Facebook was down. You understood that the rest of the world was essentially unless you you're using Facebook to log into something else, which some people were doing uh, with the uh, the credentials. Uh, the rest of the world carried on um, uh, with the AWS outage. We learned how much everybody is using US East One. Just the one region, the one cloud provider is powering so much. And so um, I got invited onto um, the Fox Business with Neil Cavuto on live TV. And there's like, why is this happening? And uh, I was like, well, you know, let's just take a step back. I mean, one thing is this is a service that is wildly popular. Uh, cloud services uh, are solving problems. Um, and this outage uh, uh is 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 kind of uh, the the flip side of that success, and it's it's hard to know. This is kind of an unknowable question, but let's say there was a thousand companies that got knocked out for that period of time. Um, in you know, how long had they been on AWS? Maybe a year. Uh, how many little outages uh, would those companies have had that they didn't have because of uh, they were they had kind of put this on AWS and they, they take the responsibility for running this. So there is a trade-off like you're you're yeah. you're you're yeah, not having outages normally that you're responsible for. You kind of outsource that. AWS uh, is is um, keeping this online until they you know they don't, but that's quite rare. In the meantime, everybody's up all the time. And I mean that didn't t- put a dent in my opinion at all in the cloud business. Uh, it still is a good um, so then, yeah, you, you still have this issue of, of consolidation. Of uh, you have a handful of companies that can take down a lot of connectivity. And um, well, I don't what about know. on I the provider it's... side? Then uh, you know we're talking about CDNs and and other types of you know Facebook and and Google, however you want to define them. But what about actual providers? Oh, like like network service providers? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's there's two there's two dynamics there. There's one uh, at a national uh, level that ends up being governed by the uh, how much the regulator of that com- country uh, tries to uh, introduce and foster comp- competition, um, and that's uh, the the lack of competition is a measure of the regulator's power to control the market. And there's lots of countries that have dominant incumbents. Uh, like every country started the same way. Everybody started with a state telecom. The government started this thing, whether that's 100 years ago with uh, uh, telegraph wires or something, but everybody started with a state telecom. And then that is now, that whatever version of that exists today is now the incumbent. Sometimes that still is the state government-owned thing. Sometimes it's been privatized. Um, But then there's, separately, there's a regulator that's trying to foster competition. And um, I think, think at least in the business uh, of, Telecommunications, it's uh, an accepted truth that more uh, competition uh, breeds lower prices, better service. Um, but it also, um, you know, depending on how strong that incumbent is, uh, you know, they may cost them jobs. Uh, they've got a lot of pull and sway, and so uh, they'll they'll fight some of those. Uh, and so then, anyway, so at the national level, you have this. Uh, so Canada is an example of one that's not. Uh, it's not it's not the worst, but it's not. Uh, they could they could have more competition. I mean, the United States is, could uh, as well. I mean, uh, you could take any. Uh, there's lots of countries that you could make this uh, argument about. And then at a at a much higher level, you've got like the backbone providers, the big uh, global networks. And um, I mean, I guess we've seen some consolidation in there. At that level, it's kind of uh, it's interesting to me that that's it's not. Uh, you have to move a lot of traffic uh, to make any money, and uh, you have to be really big. And you know, it's a commodity uh, thing. And anytime you your product turns into a commodity, then you're then it's just you know, can you move large amounts? Uh, and it becomes uh, cutthroat on price and scale. And so you have these very large companies uh, trying to move huge amounts uh, of uh, traffic uh, with very few company uh, people, uh, as few few engineers as you can as. Uh, just as much equipment as you need. Um, and uh, there's been some consolidation. You've got like, I guess they're Lumen now, who owned uh, Level 3, who, who bought uh, um, Global Crossing and XO. And like that, all that, all those companies are now, CenturyLink is all one one thing. So there's been some consolidation there. Um, and then there's others that are essentially national champions that are probably not going to be, um, 
they're too important to be acquired. NTT, uh, the Japan is not going to be acquired. Uh, and um, uh, even Tata, based in India, is not going to be. Uh, maybe they will. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I can't right, say. Right. No, but, well, um, you know, it's interesting that you started to bring up this, uh, this distinction between uh, privatized carriers, uh, carriers that were started as state-run businesses, things like that. Because it started to get me thinking of uh, the last section or maybe the middle section of your blog post. You talked about um, outages in Cuba, the protests in Iran, and then the resultant uh, behavior from the national government there to shut things down. That's something that we're starting to see. Ukraine as well, right? Um, there is this uh, – you were going to say something. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the, uh, the last outages in Ukraine, not so much government-directed. Uh, like oh, fair. That's Iran, right. Like, yeah. I mean – they're getting bombed. Uh, it's happening, you know, till to the, still to this day. Um, Nevertheless, a result of sort of geopolitical occurrences. For sure, for um, sure. In this case, war, <laughs> uh, which which is not the same as the government trying to shut down a protest or, or stop the flow right. of information. So that that is true. Uh, but nevertheless, it's it's uh, nation states making decisions to um, to control information, uh, and that's really where I was getting at with Cuba and Iran. Uh, uh, that that is a very different type of of outage, isn't it? And disruption on the internet. We've talked about natural disasters and undersea cables and satellite and um, human error, which is probably the most uh, <laughs> the most ubiquitous type of of outage, right? But now we're seeing this happen more and more, and you're reporting on it. Uh, I see I see your Twitter feed, I see your LinkedIn post all the time about uh, nations that say, "No, we're going to shut you down, citizenry." How is that playing into this? Is this becoming a more widespread uh, uh, you know, thing that's happening among countries? Yeah, I mean, on this topic, I got into it uh, long ago with the uh, Arab Spring back when we were, uh, I was with uh, Renesis. Um, you know, we were, we were already mapping out uh, the global internet with a live picture of the internet in any country. And so when Egypt went offline, we could pull that up immediately and understand you know, what was up, what was down, what the timing. And then we worked with the uh, global media outlets to tell that story from a technical standpoint. Um, and I've never stopped, uh, kind of covering this from or trying to come up with ways to contribute, uh, you know, some technical analysis to our understanding of uh, these things, but they, they don't seem to stop. Um, it's very hard to, it's very hard to, um, uh, order a, a sovereign nation to do, uh, to stop doing something bad, uh, you know, yeah. and, and whether that's shut, shutting off uh, internet or uh, other things. But this this one, um, I thought uh, this fall we saw a couple more instances of what's been termed as a internet curfew, um, uh, where internet service gets turned down for a, a period of time deliberately and then restored uh, later. And it's often in the evening. It's often uh, focusing more on mobile uh, services mm-hmm. uh, and leaving fixed line up. Uh, and what the issue is, is that, you know, this, uh, in each case, going back to, we saw this first in Gabon and then uh, uh, Myanmar last year uh, did this after the military coup. Uh, in this, in each case, you know, the, the rationale is there's definitely some cost to shutting all your services off. Uh, there's cost to the, the businesses of your country. There's lots of lots of things. It's disruptive to the government itself. Um, and so to, mit, to mit, mitigate, to hedge that, um, then they want to try to isolate, be a little more surgical about shutting things off. And there's there's you know, blocking, uh, censoring particular types of, of web services is one thing that's done uh, quite a bit. And then another thing is to, you know, in the case of... Uh, like Iran is a good example. This went for um, I don't know more than a couple of weeks, uh, where basically the the three major mobile providers basically turn off their service, uh, f- uh, starting in um, the early evening and going into the early morning. And what they're trying to do is try to disrupt uh, the uh, the protesters in the street, their ability to communicate right. to each other and organize, their ability to report in a live, live. I mean, eventually services kind of come back and they can report at that point, but. Um, uh, at the at the moment, they're unable to um, you know uh, tell each other what's what's going on, and uh, and then at the same time, you know anybody who's uh, using fixed line, those are people in offices, these are people in uh, those those people, their service for the most part remains online. There's things that are getting uh, for services that aren't blocked, um, and so that's their way to try to uh, lower the cost of a government-directed shutdown. And um, uh, we may see more of this. Uh, we you know. 
there was both Cuba and Iran happening almost simultaneously this fall. Last year was Myanmar. Uh, there aren't that many examples of it, but I, I don't know. I, I think these guys look at uh, other countries and see what they do, and um, uh, they, others may learn from that and be like, well, that's a good yeah. way to uh, keep uh, not upset the business community and the government uh, and, and uh, get those pesky uh, protesters to not be able to communicate. These pesky protesters. I mean, you, you say there aren't that many examples, right? But they are a very uh, top of mind. I mean, they, they th- this this uh, notion of authoritarian governments shutting down protests in and of itself by shutting off the flow of information, um, though it's very few as far as the examples that we can point to, they're very profound, I think, in their impact and in the discussion, the philosophical discussion on the future of the Internet its use by humanity just to propagate information and to be connected. Um, now, separate separate note, but just thinking now about the global internet, right? How how BGP operates and how it's so much of a trust relationship. You know, I can I can take in a full feed. I can advertise pretty much whatever I want, right? Uh, beyond a, a password um, for an adjacency and some other things like that. Um, do you see that as a problem? Is now that this is not 1994, where the internet was this cool idea that's never going to take off, and now is the lifeblood of our society, at least in the United States and in many other nations, is the security component of the internet, maybe specifically BGP, but of the internet, um, an issue? Because we are seeing, you know, hospitals, uh, hospital systems with 80,000, 100,000 employees, like in the New York tri-state area, uh, get, uh, you know, uh, what is it, hijacked and and shut down until they pay a ransom. Expand that to a global scale, shutting down a country unless you do what I say, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Let's see, I guess on on the routing, topic of routing security, I think for for those of us that uh, work in that space and think about it a lot, um, I think you have to I think the number one message to communicate to people who don't, who aren't in that space, is that this is a <clears throat> this is a very hard problem, and it is a it is a constellation of problems. Uh, it is not one thing. There's a whole bunch of sub sub issues here. It's not we're not going to deploy a single technology in, in a day that solves this. It's just uh, you can only imagine trying. You've got a routers all across the world, uh, an internet of routers that all have to. We've got to get them to do something different. That is really hard uh, to do. So uh, the problem is very hard, but I, I would also, uh, and it's not solved, um, but I, I guess I'm a glass half full uh, kind of guy, and here's why. So um, there's uh, so RPKI ROV, Route Origin Validation, is uh, you know, our, our, uh, the, the technology that's getting pushed uh, these days on uh, trying to um, limit certain types of these problems. You can imagine there's a spectrum of these issues. And on one hand, one end is the bonehead errors, just stupid stuff. Uh, and when I started doing this a little over 10 years ago, we had there was lots of stuff happening on that end of the spectrum. And probably lots of stuff happening on the other end too, but we were just, we had made no progress on even easy or like just uh, dumb errors. And I feel like these days uh, uh, with the uh, adoption of uh, RPKROV, so what this is is basically folks who own uh, uh, internet resources, uh, so IP addresses specifically we're talking about, you can go into their RIR portal. If you're North America, you go into Aaron, you set up like what is the proper origin that you would you would want, who should be um, originating uh, this in, in BGP land, and uh, and that gets communicated to everybody in the system. If, you see, if they see something somebody else, uh, then they'll drop. Uh, if they see another origin, they'll drop that route. If they're uh, also participating in the system, um, it's not foolproof, uh, but it does uh, reduce uh, the um, the impacts of origination leaks when somebody accidentally barfs out a, a bunch of uh, a full table. I mean, we haven't yeah. had one of those in a long time, and um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think there's, it's not just RPI. There's things like I don't want to get into all these, but things like. Um, uh, peer lock uh, is something that, uh, that uh, so this is where the major providers uh, look at. Just they just filter. They should not be receiving other like a, a, a people in the we call them the TFC or DFC default free zone like the top of the internet, top of the internet hierarchy. Uh, so it's a fully connected mesh. This is the way the internet has to operate. Any link 
gets disconnected, then there's a partition, and one part can't touch another. But uh, at the top, it's a it's a full partition. But they should so let's say take like Lumen and let's say NTT. Uh, uh, Lumen should not be receiving NTT stuff from one of its customers. Um, uh, is, is essentially the, the the gist of it. And you can come up with a handful of rules uh, that just what are the um, what would be the, um, uh, the the AS paths that should be automatically rejected. That's widely deployed, and and so I would say that a lot of these major um, bonehead things are um, you don't happen that much anymore and I would add also uh, that you know I was one of the people who was writing up uh, a lot of um, uh, sketchy um, internet routing issues involving China Telecom uh, and this uh, got a lot of uh, circulation in national security circles um, it led it's led to the FCC uh, to revoke China Telecom's op uh, license to operate uh, uh, telecommunication services in the United States. Um, I we used to see them involved in these leaks. I can't tell you the last one that that, that China Telecom was a was it a uh, was a was a part of it. And um, yeah. you know, they had joined Manners, which is the um, Internet Society's effort mm -hmm. to try to. And there's not really any you know. Um, mechanism uh you you join and you pledge to do a bunch of things and then they yeah. are uh, kind of vouching that you're actually doing these and there's there's some attempt to try to check up on this um it's not uh it's mostly a, a pledge and then you know that you'd be shamed if you did something wrong you'd be shamed it's a trust relationship yeah uh, and then, but the then i don't know they, they joined it and i there isn't yeah. um i haven't seen them uh in mm. one of these in a while and uh right. so Maybe we are making well, some progress. I have progress. to imagine that it it behooves any any country that has any kind of nefarious intention to not do that uh, when they are interacting with other nations as uh, you know as a means of doing business, of interacting with other countries to keep peace. Um, so as much as you might have this nefarious intention, uh, you know, it, I know this is going to be a strange analogy, Doug, but I just watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Clint Eastwood, one of my favorite <laughs> movies. Right, I love westerns. And my wife was with me, and she's like, "Did they really act like that?" And I'm like, "Not, not really." You know, I did I did some quick googling on my phone while we were watching the movie, and you know, I was just reading that uh, a lot of this stuff is fantasy and and hyperbole for for movie. It's a good story, because, though. Yeah, it's a great story. I love it. I love the spaghetti westerns very, very much. Um, and and the, the the fact is that folks went out to the West, U.S. Cowboys and families and ranchers and all these people alike to make a better life for themselves. You had sure. the bad element. Um, but it wasn't this Wild West that we see in Clint Eastwood movies and, and you know, uh, uh, other movies like that, John Wayne movies. It was much, much more calm with, of course, those exceptions. And I, and I have to imagine that that's true on a nation-state level, on a provider level, on a, you know, on a global scale with regard to the Internet. Uh, we're all trying to do the best we can for ourselves. It's self-interest, and I get that, and that's okay. Um, but it's in my self-interest as a country to make sure I'm not screwing up my relationship with other countries because that's a great source of income and, and uh, uh, again, keeping no, peace. It's a, good, it's, a, it's a good point. It is, it is a property of the Internet, but I would also add uh, that um, you know, I'll shift gears from being a Pollyanna to, uh, <laughs> um, like, we – we there's a lot of assumptions on the internet. Like for example, you know when we've run, we've exhausted uh, v6. Everybody, all the v6 that's gonna uh, IP address uh, uh, that's uh, that's gonna be used, it's already been given out. Uh, there's no more. The v6, you mean the v4? Sorry, v4. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. No, we're not running out of v6 yet. Sorry, v4. We have v4. a few more v6. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me, I misspoke. Um, right. But you know, if we got to a point where let's say China is like, you know what? We we think uh, you know like they actually you know let's say let's say um, not that long ago before they and DOD started announcing all this address space this is that it was a big story last year there was they were sitting on a ton that nobody was using like four billion addresses or something or maybe not four billion yeah there was some some large amount um, uh, a few hundred million and um, uh, you know Chinese companies would use these internally use US DOD address space internally and nothing's to stop them they, it, as long yeah. as it's not out on the internet and occasionally it would leak out or something. if care. you ran a trace route it'd be kind of funny because you'd be like China 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 DOD China 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 yeah. but um, uh, uh, but you know you could get to a point where countries no longer um, 
agree on what are the norms of uh, respecting these boundaries because there's no way to enforce any of this. And right now it's still, uh, we're all in this, we have this common good. Uh, even though some countries may be at war with each other, they still respect these boundaries. Um, uh, but I don't know. I, I think I think it's one of these things where um, uh, that's a line that could get crossed at some point. Uh, so, for like, let's say uh, the U Ukraine has, uh, you know, their their vice president had uh, called for this IT army to attack things in Russia. Uh, if you wanted to support Ukraine, you'd attack, and people were, you know, participating in this. Uh, they still this still happens. I mean. If they really wanted to, they could start just announcing all their Russian address space and just screwing, and Russia could start announcing all the Ukrainian address space, and yeah. it would just be a, a, a complete mess. Um, and uh, that's a line. I, like, uh, we, 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 uh, I think we just assume that would never get crossed, but uh, it could. Uh, and then it's a hypothetical, isn't it? We, this really, we really could. There is a possibility yeah. of this stuff breaking apart. Uh, yeah. and, um, there's no technical reason that there's no technical reason. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I'll just say one more thing, uh, sure. Phil, on the, uh, so we talked about the reasons to be optimistic on routing security, but then, you know, the flip side of that is that there's a lot of things that aren't solved. And, uh, you know, there's been a few cryptocurrency uh, attacks that were very profitable for the folks that, that pulled these off. And these oh, are, interesting, yeah. these are the sophisticated, uh, attacks. So I mentioned the spectrum of one end's bonehead, the other end's sophisticated, uh, we call it a determined adversary is the, uh, phrase, phraseology. Um, what, uh, that's, a determined adversary. Determined if you are really adversary. determined to defeat RPKROV, you can do it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and there's there's ways to manipulate the system that just aren't we just haven't solved uh, yet. And uh, and there are people who are doing this now. And I think as we clear and clean up that the bonehead section, and experts can kind of keep moving moving the needle up towards the uh, uh, the determined adversary, then I think we can start to tighten down and make that. Uh, costlier, uh, if we can't make it completely prevented, uh, and maybe some of these scenarios can be prevented. Um, but uh, but there's um, there's a lot happening in that in that space as well in the determined adversary, yeah. uh, BGP hijacks. Yeah, and with regard to this entire idea of outages that we've been talking about and major disruptions on a large scale, global scale, certainly more complex than uh, the the few things that we've mentioned today. Right, the the, the theme that I picked out. Uh, natural disasters and uh, uh, human error and nation states uh, being authoritarian in their control of information. It's, it's actually much more than that. And we touched on BGP security as well. So in any case, uh, Doug, we're at time. Uh, great conversation. So much we can unpack. I think we can turn this into about 20 different podcasts, maybe a series on internet love analysis. Love it. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I love talking about this stuff. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate Happy that. Happy to do it. So as we wrap up here, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity. How can folks reach out to you if they don't know already? How they can reach out to you to ask a question, make a comment? Um, I am still on Twitter. <laughs> mm -hmm. I haven't departed. Um, I still think it's probably going to be around for a while. Uh, but yeah. um, uh, that's probably the easiest. I put some things there. I'm on LinkedIn as well. You can feel free to send me a, uh, an okay. invite. If you're in the business, I usually accept it. And then I try to start a conversation about like, what is it you're interested in? See if there's any common, uh, uh, commonality with our interests. Right. But What's those your are good handle? ways to, uh, it's just at Doug Midori, D O U G M A D O R Y. Great. And, uh, I believe you blog pretty, uh, frequently, uh, on the, uh, Kentic. Uh, I try to, yeah. Blog. Right. Okay. So make sure to check that out. You can find me on Twitter, network underscore Phil. I am still very active there. Uh, I am uh, also on LinkedIn. You can search me there. My blog is networkphil.com. Not, uh, not as frequently posting recently, but uh, you can still check it out. So until next time, thanks very much for uh, listening. Bye-bye. Uh,